0: Bullshit is everywhere. Bullshit is rampant. Bullshit.
1: Bullshit. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell... I'm as bad as hell, and
2: I'm not gonna take this anymore. Welcome back to the bullshit filter. Hey, Ray hey. Bear. Does anybody does anybody actually do that? I hope someone out there is
3: every time you play that intro, they stop what they're doing, they stick their head out the window and yell. I, I, I certainly hope that happens.
2: I think Donald Trump does that every day. That's how he starts <laughs> his day. On the toilet tweeting, and then he goes, I'm as mad as hell.
3: I'm as constipated as hell, and I'm not going to take it anymore.
2: Hey, I came up with a new name for you uh, last night, uh, Ray. Gosh. The dog ate my homework, Harris. <laughs> this is after last week when you it's went. Kinda... Oh yeah, I didn't. I I prepared the wrong. Bit. <laughs> I did, I, but I
3: did the I wrong pre- one. Yeah, the wrong note. That's that's kind of a lot to fit on a coffee mug, but I'm going to work on the
2: that. dog ate my homework, Harris. Harris. Um, bet. this is what, 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 uh this is Syria twenty. Um, we're getting towards the end I know I said that last time And I've been saying that About the Alexander Show For the last year As it turns it out uh, Yeah But uh, We are getting we, We're catching up To modern Yeah Times uh, In the last episode We talked about the uh, Sarin gas attack In Ghouta Suburb of Damascus Happened in uh, August of 2013 And uh, we mentioned that A bit about Obama's Red Line uh, Back a year before the Gouda attacks On August 20, 2012 President Obama Do you remember when Do you remember when you had Obama as a president?
3: No That Hold on, that feels like it was about ten <laughs> years ago. But I'm 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 semi looking forward to President Pence. Not really, but I think it's just a matter of time. It's funny, anyway, like it- I don't I don't remember when Obama was president. It's like it's in the history books. Mm. It was like when my 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 parents or grandparents' days. That's how long it feels.
2: Going back and watching clips of Obama as president is like going back and watching old timey Cary Grant movies. <laughs> It's like, you think, wow, black. people were so civilized and sophisticated. Back when presidents were... Was- new knew words, <laughs> knew lots of bigly words. Uh, and he didn't just look like he was shitting in his pants every time he was in front of a camera. Trump just has this constant expression on his face like... He is yeah, taking, I it's the same one here. that Fox gets when he's just taking a dump uh, in his nappy. <laughs> Trump just has this look. I think he's incontinent. I think that's what his problem is. I think he's just shitting himself constantly. And he's like, oh, this is disgusting, but I can't do anything about it. He's just got this look in his face like everything is disgusting and something really smells here. This is look of disgust on his face. Self-disgust. We've got
3: to put He's got to put his pants on every day now. I mean, when you're walking around Trump Towers, you can do business <laughs> in your underwear. Mm. And Mike he probably did. But uh, yeah, I just imagine he's got to get up. He's got to get dressed. He's got to go to a desk. I mean, it just must suck for this man who was used to being totally free and doing and saying anything he wanted.
2: Yeah. Anyway, the red line. Anyway. Um. Yes. So uh, August twenty twenty twelve, 2012, he said the use of chemical weapons would be a red line that would change his calculus Big word, uh, in intervening in the Civil War. Let's 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 just play the quote. Like, why am I saying it? We'll play the quote again. This is Obama, twenty twelve.
1: I have, uh, at this point, not ordered military uh, engagement in the situation. But the point that you made about uh, chemical and biological weapons is critical. Uh, that's an issue that doesn't just concern Syria. It concerns our close allies in the region, including Israel. Uh, It concerns us. Uh, We cannot have a situation where chemical or biological weapons are falling into the hands of the wrong people. Uh, We have been very clear to the Assad regime, but also to other players on the ground, that a red line for us is we start seeing a whole bunch of chemical weapons moving around or being utilized. Uh, That would change my calculus. That would change my equation.
2: And then, of course, almost a year later to the day, there was the Ghouta attacks. There'd been the Khan al-Assal sarin gas attacks in March of 2013, then Ghouta in Damascus in August. And on August 31st, the US military was getting ready to make strikes on Syrian targets. But... Obama blinked. And that's the story we're going to tell in this episode.
3: Yeah. There was, um, let me see, there's a report. Let's see, there was a Derek Cholette I'm saying his last name right, C H O L L E T, who uh, worked for the Obama presidency. He was the Assistant Secretary of Defense for inter- International Security Affairs, and he was a part of the team that was working on coming up with a list of things to strike in case the president ever ordered it. Um, you know, lower targets, uh, more uh, important targets, and so when this when they go into labor. Uh, Labor Day weekend of 2013. Everybody just knows that this is coming. Obama's going to give the word. They're going to pull out this list that they've been working on uh, with the military advisors, obviously. And they're, and they're going to start hitting things. And he gets a call saying that um, everybody was ordered to stand down, that the president was going to seek authorization from Congress first. So they just knew this was going to happen. They were gearing up and suddenly the the brakes are just pushed uh, by Obama. They're all in shock, but he's the president and now he's going to go to his, you know, these, uh, the Republicans who have been giving him a hard time since day one, and he's going to seek their counsel.
2: (laughs) Yeah. So we're going to tease nicely. We're going to tease this story out, but, um, you know, essentially, he had reached out, or his administration had reached out, as they always do uh, in times like this, to their foreign allies to make sure they have their support. Because this Mm -hmm. isn't something that is being sanctioned by the United Nations. This is just the US, as they have done many times before, in more recent times, particularly the, the invasion of Iraq back in 2003, Mm-hmm. They're just going to strike. They're not going to go to the international community and ask uh, for permission. They're just going to go and do it. And, and partly because they know if they went to the UN Security Council, uh, Russia and possibly China would use their vetoes to say, no, you can't do it. So they've just decided they're going to do it.
3: But but couldn't couldn't you argue that the world is expecting the United States to do something to lead that no one is really going to do anything until the United States steps up, because that's the way it's been since 1945. And so um, you're, you're right. He can't go to the UN, but at the same time, everybody's used to you, the United States just leading uh, throughout the world. And so to not go to the UN to me, doesn't seem like it's such a big deal, even though it would be nice to have their approval.
2: Holy shit! Like, fucking, really? Seriously, the world is used to the U.S. leading. That's what you think?
3: Not, not in a good way. But, uh, but how many times? I mean, as a kid growing up, and in my twenties and thirties, I just remember, you know, every time there's an incident or something like this, the uh, the powers in Europe would basically get behind whatever the United States were going to uh, said that we should do. So, to me. Britain and France, or at least those two, are waiting for the United States to do something. Because as we're going to see a little later on, France is like, we support you, United States, and we will bomb with you. And so they're going to be brought up short when things change. But again, I, I would think that the um, international community has gotten used to it, not in a good way, but has gotten used to the United States taking the lead on issues like this.
2: Wow. Uh, now, that's, that's, that, that's a very strange view. From my perspective, I think that's probably a fairly common American view. But from my side of the world, I'm like, really? Uh, Yeah, look, uh, I think if we unpack that, you're, you're, you're right to a point that diplomats and maybe politicians around the world, particularly those that are in the American sphere of influence, Will follow America's lead. Australian politicians are classic in this sense. Yeah, Australian politicians will basically agree to anything the sitting American president says over the last uh, couple of decades, anyway. Yeah, because and, and that we are, was the
3: point I was making.
2: Politically, politically speaking, yeah. But if you're talking about the people around the world. No,
3: no, no, no. No, I'm sorry, I should have been more clear. I'm certainly talking about the heads of state, foreign um, mm. foreign ministers things like that, ambassadors.
2: Well, I still think that a lot of people believe uh, in diplomatic circles believe that the UN is important and that the UN plays a role as flawed and fractured and badly oh, yeah. engineered as the UN Security Council is. It's still important. Uh, in terms of international law, that we yeah, give yeah. it an opportunity to do what it was set up to do. If, if, we, if the new normal is, well, does, we just ignore the UN and, and everybody just does whatever the fuck they want, then right. no. we're going back yeah. to things as they were in the early 20th century before the, before Roosevelt, yeah. with his dying breath... Uh, Brings life
3: into the UN. Oh, yeah,
2: Past his yeah. his soul, his magical <laughs> uh, aura, spirit. Yeah, into the UN. <laughs> well, but
3: like, like. Obama.
2: Like Roosevelt, yep. it's been in a wheelchair. It's uh, <laughs> been crippled.
3: It's limping along. It really needs to quit smoking and, and get some exercise. But, and stop, um, no, stop,
2: <laughs> stop banging mistresses on the side. But anyway, yeah. Quit,
3: quit, quit. Get, and, and also getting leg massages from them. That's also considered tacky. Uh, but note to quote Obama, um, let me be clear here. No, he, he, it's it's pretty much. I wasn't saying that the UN is not important. Even if they go through the UN, it's just that I think to a certain degree, certain countries have gotten used to following America's lead in in international crises. That's the. It's full stop. That's all I was trying to say.
2: All right. Well, let's move on. Um, so he Follow- had reached out to his allies, as you say, France, Britain, Australia. Just to make sure that if he goes ahead with this, his allies will have his back and they'll say, well, yeah, look, uh, we agree. Good thing to do. Uh, Blah, 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 blah. Unfortunately, he didn't get the support of British Parliament. And I'll go into more detail about that later on. Um, But uh, he went for a walk with his chief of staff, Dennis McDonough, and pitched him on this idea. Hey. Why don't I take this to Congress for approval? So then people can't turn around and blame me later on. They can't say, oh, look at Obama. He's just like Bush bombing countries, invading countries. I think he's worried about uh, the the Democratic base, how they will perceive him. There's already was, continues to be talk, certainly amongst the genuinely progressive Sides of the left, I think, in the US, they go, well, you know, really was Obama that much different to Bush when it comes to international affairs? Mm-hmm. You know, he would right. use drones. He didn't go throw boots on the ground like Bush did, but except if you consider a surge or this or that or whatever, but he used drones a lot and uh, to, to, carry out U.S. foreign policy. A lot of civilians were killed, thousands and thousands of civilians killed as a result of Obama's drone strikes. So I think he's very conscious of protecting uh, his reputation or the reputation of a Democratic White House with the progressive parts of the left. And so he takes this has this idea of taking it to Congress. Now, this is kind of fascinating because there was no... Fucking way, <laughs> Congress was going to give him this approval, <laughs> and there's and there's
3: several oppo- and strangely enough opposing reasons for that. Um, so because for me, um, see, John McCain, Lindsey Graham, and Joe Lieberman have been harassing Obama since, uh, early 2012 about we need to do something. We need to do something. You need to have, you know, zones of safety for the opposition. Uh, and even John McCain wanted to set that up, which means obviously firing on the enemy. So these, these, um, two Republicans and one independent are giving Obama a hard time for over a year saying, you have to do something. You have to lead. And, of course, they're not in any way going to take responsibility for this, but at least they get to chastise the president for seemingly inactivity.
2: Yeah, it's kind of fascinating. As you said earlier on, from the very beginning of Obama's presidency, he was uh, predictably criticized by the Republicans for being weak. For being black. Oh, sorry. Being, yeah, for being black and a Muslim and weak militarily. Uh, and as soon as he decides to do something military yeah. militarily, militarily is that a word anyway yeah militarily yep they go well fuck no like <laughs> we're, you might we're not be approving a hero that or
3: what a, yeah but, yeah yeah
2: um so I, I i don't think he really wanted to do it honestly uh, I, agree. I don't think he wanted to do these strikes i think he was in a bind where he wanted to Look strong, look tough He'd said there was a red line But now they'd crossed the red line And he goes like Well, you know When I said red line It's more kind of pink, really Orange, yellow, maybe (laughs) Um, But um, you know who who thought the bombing Syria would be a bad idea? Who? Uh, Some guy by the name of Donald Trump I think it's pronounced here (laughs) Um, on August 31st 2013 he tweeted if Obama if Obama attacks Syria and innocent civilians are hurt and killed he and the US will look very bad very bad (laughs) a few hours later he tweeted how bad has our leader made us look on Syria stay out of Syria we don't have the we don't have the leadership to win wars or even strategize (laughs) Uh, and also, <coughs> he tweeted, Why do we keep broadcasting when we're going to attack Syria? Why can't we just be quiet? And if we attack at all, catch them by surprise? Now, of course, what did Donald Trump do when he, as president, finally bombed Syria almost four years later? He gave the Russians advance warning, <laughs> and the Russians told the Syrians. And the Syrians evacuated the airfield, moved all of their important equipment out of the way, so there was no serious damage done. So in 2013 he's criticizing Obama for uh, giving Syria warning that they're going to be attacked uh, four years later, he gives the warning uh, You just got to love and you know and, and, and he criticizes Obama for, for attacking Syria in the first, for, for thinking about attacking Syria in the first place. As soon as he's president, he goes and does exactly what he told Obama he shouldn't do.
3: Exactly. But, but to defend Trump, obviously that's going to be left up to me. Um, <laughs> when, when he drops, when he authorizes the drop of the largest non-nuclear bomb in Syria and right afterwards goes, oh, that, that felt good. That's really all that matters. I think he just wanted to say, hey, I want to try this. I want to do this. They're going to clear it all out because I've told my buddies the Russians. But you just get the sense it's a little child going, this is an awesome fucking toy, and I want to see how it works. Because we know it didn't do anything.
2: Yeah. yeah. Made him feel good, though. Um, they had to get an extra box of tissues for him that day. <laughs> He also uh, tweeted on the same day, back in 2013. Mr. Trump, this is the president must get congressional approval before attacking Syria. Big mistake if he does not. Um, so the question now, is, of course, did
3: yeah. did
2: Trump get congressional approval before he attacked Syria in 2017? Ah, no, no, he did not. Um, <laughs> So
3: well, there were certain powers given to the president after 9/11 <clears throat> where they they certainly have a wide range of options before them without having so Trump didn't break any rules and and Obama would not have broken any rules so he had he gone in firing.
2: Yeah, and as we'll see uh, later on in the show, according to Lindsey Graham, if he was president, he'd be like I wouldn't go to Congress for approval. Um, <laughs> anyway, let me let me play a clip here. So this uh this is so Back to August 31st, 2013, Obama gave a press conference uh, talking about going to Congress. After careful
1: deliberation, I have decided that the United States should take military action against Syrian regime targets. But having made my decision as commander-in-chief based on what I am convinced is our national security interests, I will seek authorization for the use of force. From the American people's representatives in Congress. So there
2: was a bill drafted called the Authorization for the Use of Military Force Against the Government of Syria to Respond to the Use of Chemical Weapons. Uh, Fair enough.
3: Like, nice, snazzy title.
2: Just bomb shit, I think, was the uh, shortened version.
3: <laughs> That's the the Trump version.
2: Special Joint Rolled Resolution. The fuck out of it. Twenty-one, SJR twenty-one. Uh, it was sent to congressional leaders for review. Now. There was immediate uh, speculation, let's call it, that this would not get through Congress. New York Times uh, predicted immediately that it would fail to get approval. Uh, Meanwhile, there was a CNN poll that was released on September 9th, 2013, that analyzed U.S. attitudes towards Syria and the possibility of U.S. military Intervention, And it basically said, look, the, the, the vast majority of citizens did not want Congress to authorize a military strike against the Assad government. And over 70% of people who responded to the survey didn't believe that a military strike would achieve U.S. goals and that it wasn't in the U.S.'s national interest to get involved in Syria. So, why the fuck would Obama go to Congress
0: mm-hmm.
2: when the people didn't want it and everyone who, uh, you know, the, the the media or the analysts, and I'm sure his own people, knew that Congress wouldn't approve it?
3: Yeah. Well, I remember uh, 2013, and I remember being the average American going, we have already been in the Middle East long enough. The last thing I want to do is to have a new chapter in that book. And the second that Obama does something, he now owns the war, or at least a piece of it, in in Syria and, and the Middle East uh, in general. So um, the, I am not surprised that the seventy percent of Americans didn't. We want our people out. We don't care anymore. We're t- we have battle fatigue. We want we want them all out. We want them to all come home and be with their families. And and but they even having said that, the average American is like, look, here is a crazy fucked up multi layered problem. If you can't fix it, don't even try. We know, we're just average guys on the streets, and we know that bombing isn't going to fix all those children that died with chemical attacks. So if that's the best you've got, we don't want any part of it because it won't fix the problem. We don't want to go in in the first place. But if it's not going to fix it, then fuck off. We don't want to have anything to do with it. Um, and I think that's more of an emotional response than anything else. But Americans are just tired of half-assed measures with no results, especially in the Middle East.
2: Yeah, but my question is, if everyone he was covering
3: his ass, covering his fucking ass, yeah,
2: Sorry for my language. right.
3: That's my so, opinion. That's my opinion.
2: Mm. So it's yeah. It appears to me he must have known this wouldn't get approved. So on one hand, he's able to mm-hmm. say, "Well, I want a bomb." I want to bomb the fuck out of Syria. I really want to bomb it. Can't wait to bomb it. I want to be <laughs> military, uh, too. I can bomb shit. Get my uh, bombs
3: wa- up in there.
2: Yeah. But I don't really want to bomb it. Um, I want to say that I want to bomb it, but I don't really want to yeah. bomb it. So uh, it's like, geez, let's think of an what? analogy that doesn't involve rape. Fuck, it's hard, man. Like, <laughs> no, or- no.
3: Well, after after following Bush... I mean, who, who went out with an approval rating of, I think, point negative two? I don't know. But I mean, the last thing this president's going to do, who's got a lick of sense, is to do anything that Bush Jr. or, or W. would have done. So I think he's got that going on. And the economy still wasn't all that great. So, no, he doesn't want to do it, but he needs an out. He's already be, being accused of being weak. He needs to shift the blame somewhere else.
2: Mm. Well, yeah. So, on tr- getting back to Trump, on September 1st, 2013, Trump tweeted, President Obama's weakness and indecision may have saved us from doing a horrible and very costly and more ways the money attack on Syria. Is that a backwards uh, compliment? Uh, yeah, I guess. Uh, <laughs> a couple of days later, Trump tweets, What I'm saying is stay out of Syria. And then okay. a few days later, he tweets, Don't attack Syria, an attack that will bring nothing but trouble for the US. Focus on making our country strong and great again.
3: (laughs) And then that's when he got his tagline.
2: Yeah. Um, So back then, Trump, very adamant, should stay out of Syria. Which is his policy now, too, which we'll get to, I guess, when we get to current day times. It's like, yeah, let just, just stay out of Syria. It's not yeah, our problem. Yeah. It's I mean, up. the current U.S. policy post-Trump is really, Assad is going to stay. We're not going to do anything. Let the Russians do what they're going to do uh, to help him stabilize his power. Not our problem.
3: Right. And they that but- way they don't release the P tape on me.
2: But he uh, did those fifty-nine strikes, as you said. Yeah. Uh, again, for the, probably for the same reason, he wanted to look tough. Yeah. Uh, but in his case, didn't go to didn't go to uh, Congress for approval. Now, on September fourth, two thousand and thirteen, in a press conference, Obama said he didn't set a red line. Oh, what I never said that. Yeah. Here's the clip. <laughs>
1: Thank you, Mr. President. Thank you, sir. Uh, Have you made up your mind uh, whether to take action against Syria, whether or not you have a congressional resolution approved? uh, Is a strike needed in order to preserve your credibility for when you set these sort of red lines? And were you able to enlist the support of the prime minister here for support in Syria? Uh, Let me unpack the question. First of all, I didn't set a red line. The world set a red line. The world set a red line when governments representing 98% of the world's population said uh, the use of chemical weapons are abhorrent and passed a treaty forbidding their use even when countries are engaged in war. Congress set a red line when it ratified that treaty. Congress set a red line. Uh, when it indicated that uh, in a uh, piece of uh, legislation titled the Syria Accountability Act that uh, some of the horrendous things that are happening on the ground there uh, need to be answered for. Uh, And so when I said in a press conference that my calculus about what's happening in Syria would be altered... By the use of chemical weapons, which the overwhelming uh, consensus of humanity says is wrong. um, That wasn't something I just kind of made up. I didn't pluck it out of thin air. Uh, There's a reason for it. So, I don't know. Does he yeah. sound
2: a little bit like uh backpedaling to you there, Ray? Yeah, a little disingenuous.
3: Um if um yeah, and there and the, when when I get a moment I want to kind of do the there's a very short history to this whole red line um term that that I wanted to get to but uh he certainly didn't come up with it. Someone else did. But p- p- the clip that you played earlier, yeah, he pretty much said this will change my calculus. As in, if you use chemical um, weapons, I am going to be forced to do something. So I think there's some there's some backpedaling there.
2: Mm, it sounded his 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 response. There sounded like it had been carefully crafted by uh, you know White House press communications officer uh, sitting in back rooms. I imagine Toby and uh, Sam was sitting Sam around. Siebert. Yeah, they are sitting around going, <laughs> well, "Shit, what are we? What are we, we going to do, do? What are we? Do? How are we, we going to get him out of this?" Well,
3: when your sentence has seventeen commas in it to explain and to flesh out, then yeah, you're being disingenuous. You're being careful with your words and you're you're following the letter of the words and not the spirit. So I I think he was backpedaling, and and he probably should have because he knew he wasn't going to or at least as far as I could tell, he knew he wasn't going to attack. And he did not need to seem any weaker than he was already being perceived.
2: And you want to do a little bit about the history of the red line?
3: I just thought it was interesting. So John McCain, Lindsey Graham, Joe Lieberman, they're saying, do something, do something. And even um, the Republican nominee, the presidential nominee, Mitt Romney, is like, we should back the Syrian rebels. And this is in uh, mid or early to mid um, 2012. So in May 31st, 2012, there's an international peace plan put together by Kofi Annan, which completely falls apart. And the White House press secretary, Jay Carney, is being asked a question. And the reporters and it's the reporter that says whether there's a red line for the president in Syria. Um, and but of course, Jay is too too crafty to fall for that. He doesn't fall for it. Um, Answering the question, he says, I'm not going to preview next steps or options. I can tell you that this is very much an urgent need for action to be taken for the international community to further unify to make it clear that a transition has to take place in Syria. And on July 13th, again, 2012, um, let's see here, Um, the um, George Little, the Pentagon press secretary, says that the use of chemical weapons would cross a serious red line. So you've got two people that have said it so far, and um, not until August does Obama say it. So there are other people that have been throwing it around, and obviously he heard some of that. And he used it, he should have been more circumspect in what he said, because he is not George W. Bush. He's not going to react the way he is. But I think I think that term had been floating around for at least uh, two months before he got to it, which is not an excuse or anything like that. But at least he wasn't the first one to say it. It had already been out there by the press and by other officials in the government.
2: And you have to wonder why they were talking that way. What was the purpose? Who was the intended audience of that line, the red line? So is it domestic or is it foreign or is it both? Was the red line rhetoric when he first issued it in 2012 his way of saying to the American people, uh, yeah, look, uh, we are monitoring the situation and we will get involved if it becomes bad enough. And by bad enough, I mean they start using uh, chemical weapons. Or was it... Aimed at the Al-Assad government uh, as a warning, or was it aimed at the Syrian rebels as a message of support, or was it aimed at the Russians or the Saudis or, or one everybody. of the one of the other players that are getting involved in the conflict? I just wonder, really, who was who, particularly if he didn't have any genuine intention of following through. With attacking Syria, Um, Um, I wonder, or maybe he did at the time think that he would do it, and then when push came to shove, kind of went, "Ooh, shit! No, I don't really want to have that on my have that on my conscience, or have that on on my record, or as you say, start something which then you know, even though it was supposed to be a limited uh, uh, engagement of like ninety days, I think just a bombing campaign. Uh, you know the arguments that get played out in places like Afghanistan and Iraq, and before that, back in uh, Vietnam. Well, we're there now. We can't ba- You know, we can't stop. Once you start something, you can't stop it ever. Exactly. Until you win, exactly. because we're Americans. Whoa, and uh, we need to win. If we don't win then we'll look weak and if we look weak then people might get ideas we need to look you know we need to stay in it to win it and it turns into a 15 year fucking debacle right well, you've,
3: you've probably heard the expression, the whisper from a president is louder than a scream from anyone else. So the, a, a press person can use the red line comment. The spokesperson for the Pentagon can use the red line comment. Obama's own um, spokesman can use the red line comment. But when the president uses those words, it takes on a whole new meaning. So I think your question is very apt about who was his intended um, audience for that, because that's why we give Donald Trump so much Grab him by the pussy. because oh God everything the u the United States president says has a certain amount of dignity or supposed to or or whatever bind it has the full effect and weight
0: Grab him by of the, the pussy. united
3: states and so for Obama to say that, I think it was intended for someone else, but once once he puts it out there, there is no taking it back uh and as you can see now he's he's starting to scramble can can I get to some of the um the comments made by the Republicans when he put his proposal out there asking for their
2: guidance. Grab him by the pussy. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, okay. please, That's please fine. do that. So,
3: so, so Tim Griffin, a Republican from Arkansas says it will be an uphill battle for the president to convince me because I think he has handled this entire situation quite poorly. Well, first of all, I have to ask what exactly in August of 2013, was the president supposed to do about Syria when no one else is doing anything? But anyway, um, John McCain of Arizona and Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, obviously two Republicans. They say that, um, uh, let's see here, they, they might have to vote no because the president's plan was too limited. Quote, we cannot in good conscience support isolated military strikes, military strikes in Syria that are not a part of an overall strategy that can change the momentum on the battlefield. So basically what they're saying is we've been bitching at you for over a year to do something. You finally come up with something and you're asking us and we're saying, no, it's not enough because we need something that's going to be a game changer when there is absolutely no game changer for the situation. So, again, they're, they're having their cake and eating it, too. They're they're turning him down, but they're also blaming him for his weakness at the same time. It's a pretty good political, a pretty good political posturing on their part, in my opinion.
2: Hmm. I've got a clip here from Lindsey Graham.
0: uh... Our president is weak and indecisive in the eyes of the world right now. Every time the president goes on national television and uh, threatens uh, Putin or anyone like Putin, everybody's eyes roll, including mine. I think Putin believes uh, that Obama is really all talk and no action. I do declare I've always (laughs) relied... (laughs)
3: but this is not a fucking game this is war these are missiles these are bombs people are gonna die this is serious shit there's gonna be collateral damage there's gonna be some little kid who happens to be in the wrong place at the wrong time you can't just bomb shit because you're gonna look weak I mean this is serious shit and you get you get this I'm sorry I'm going off you get the sense these people in congress have no fucking idea what they're talking about because they're driven everywhere everything is done for them they don't even have to pick up their own mail they have a pampered life and All this shit is real. And these are bombs and bullets and people are going to die. People who have nothing to do with this. They're just in the wrong place. And they're worried about him looking weak because he won't destroy something or kill someone. It's just madness to me. And I, and I'm finished now. I'm going to get stepped down from my
2: soapbox. (laughs) Well, I, you know, I, I believe that their understanding I'm talking about these, uh, Republican and Democratic congressmen and women understand Mm -hmm. that the strength of the American economy relies heavily on military Keynesianism and the military-industrial complex. And in order to maintain America's hegemony and economic strength, they need to keep fighting wars. That's what drives the economy, as we've discussed in depth on our Cold War series. And, you know, a a short term bombing campaign, well, we get to use a few bombs, but uh, that's not what we want. What we want is something that we can turn into something else, something that will keep the uh, military industrial complex running for the next 10, 15, 20 years. That's what's going to make America strong, not this limited engagement bullshit. Um, I see. So I think part of it is probably that calculus, to use President Obama's big word. Uh, I think some of it is obviously also just political. Uh, right. Just oh, yeah. block Obama at, at every step, find every opportunity to criticize, undermine, white ant, bitch about uh, whatever he does. If he. If Obama had gone ahead and suggested a full-on 10-year boots-on-the-ground strategy, they would have found reason to criticise that as well, I'm sure. Anyway, the, uh, the bill never got the opportunity to get a floor vote. Because on the 10th of September 2013, there was a deal negotiated with Russia to bring Bashar al-Assad to the table and get him to agree to destroy Syria's stockpile of chemical weapons. Now, by the way, this is a stockpile of chemical weapons, which he denied having. Uh, They said, you know that stockpile of chemical weapons that you don't have? Uh, Yes. Yes. We want you to destroy it. Oh, uh, well, okay. And we won't bomb you. So this was how Obama got around the whole deal. Uh, Talk tough go to Congress, uh, get rejected by Congress unofficially, then go to Russia and get Russia to help you do a deal with Syria to get rid of the chemical weapons. Not to end the civil war, just to destroy their chemical weapons.
3: Do you have the clip from John Kerry on September 9th?
2: I do not. Do you? Okay.
3: No, no, I couldn't find it. I was just hoping you were a little more diligent than I was.
2: I do have this clip from Lindsey Graham, another clip. Uh, he went on CNN and had this to say.
3: say we'll did try, he's, actually. OK, but you say he's backed himself into a corner. Yeah. So does he even have to go to Congress?
0: You know, there's probably a reason for 225 times presidents didn't come to Congress. I don't know if I'd come to talk with us. <laughs> Quite frankly, the president's mismanaged this from day one about what we're trying to do, the goals we're trying to achieve. I think he made an unbelievably compelling case that we need to act here and compare that to the unbelievably small response we're going to give. So at the end of the day, if I were the president, I would act after this speech if the diplomacy fell apart, and I wouldn't come back to Congress. Do you think he should? Because if he doesn't, his credibility as a world leader is completely shocked. You can't address the world and talk to your enemies and your friends in the tone he did and do nothing.
3: But what does it do? <laughs> <laughs> They're going to get him either way. They're yeah. going to get him
2: I mean, he totally mismanaged this, coming and asking us for permission to do what we've been telling him to do for all this time. Like, that's just ridiculous. <laughs> what was he thinking? I've always relied on the kindness of strangers. <laughs> uh, you know, it's just... It's its so it laughable, these guys. Just... Yeah. Yeah. A, how do they fucking wake up and look at themselves in the mirror in the morning? And how do people keep voting them in? They're just what? a bunch of cunts. Seriously. Seriously.
3: I guess that basically they're going to go, okay, Graham, you're going to be interviewed no matter what they ask, no matter how you answer. The last part of your speech, the last part of your answer, just twisted to make it negative about Obama. Okay, go outside. Yeah, I mean that's pretty much everything he says is he's able to, to turn it on. I mean, and, and I get that's what you do, but it, but like you said, we keep voting these people into office because we think our individual representative is noble and everybody else is a, a jerk or whatever. And that's just not the case. They're all self-serving, and some—I mean, some of them have been in Congress for decades. If they haven't made any changes by now, they should get the hell out. But it's just how the game is played.
2: Now, I said it, the, this bill never got to the stage where it was voted on, but uh, a few days after they pulled it, uh, the Washington Post created its own whip count of where the votes would have stood. Ooh. According to them, uh, the yes votes were 25, 17 Democrats and eight Republicans. Uh, interesting. Interesting here, yeah, that there were Democrats who were like, yes, bomb the fuck out of them, man. Let's go. Let's <laughs> drop them bombs. Undecided, 145, 111 Democrats, 34 Republicans. Leaning no, 101, 38 Democrats, 63 Republicans. Against, 162, 34 Democrats, 91 Republicans. So, against, if you combine against and leaning no, you've got 263 versus yeah. 25 yes votes. Even if all of the undecided voted yes, he would still only have one hundred and seventy versus two hundred and sixty-three, but interesting how many of these uh, leaning no's and against were Democrats. There was seventy-two leaning no and against in the Democrats. Now there was one hundred and there was seventeen yes and mm-hmm. uh, seventy-two against or leaning no from Obama's own party, which is the point I wanted to make here. So. Right. It wasn't just the Republicans that weren't prepared to support Obama on this. It was even his own party weren't prepared to support him on this. And he must, of course, have known that. So I don't want to throw all of the shade at the Republicans here, even though they had been the ones saying, "Be tough, be tough, be tough. He tries to be tough. They go, "Don't That's not tough enough. That's not tough. Be tougher. Uh, His own party didn't want him to do this, yet Obama still pretended like he did want to do it, even when he didn't even have the support of his own party, let alone the Republicans. Yeah,
3: and he almost almost sold it to us, but... And, and I think those numbers that you just quoted are, are indicative of the American people. The vast majority are like, no, there's nothing in it for us. We're not in harm. We got enough shit going on here with You want to talk about the budget. <clears throat> you want to talk about immigration and all these other things we have to, to work on. This is not who in the hell would voluntarily open up another box of crap to deal with. And I think the vast majority of the people were just like, nope, it is not for us at this time. No, thank you.
2: And anyway, within weeks, the U.S. version of the events that took place at Ghouta began to fall apart. Do you have anything more to talk about in terms of the vote before I move on? No, please. We talked a little bit about this in previous episodes, but I want to just touch on it in more detail because I think it's important. I think still a lot of people uh, probably assume that the Syrians were responsible the sarin attack at gouda that certainly has been a lot of the response that i've had from people because that was i think the dominant uh message in the western media that uh it was the uh, assad government or the uh, his military that were responsible but I know there's been some serious doubts raised about that, and I'm not just talking about conspiracy theory stuff. I'm talking about it from fairly credible sources. Right. The first thing that sort of looks strange here is the matter of the number of civilian deaths. The White House at the time was claiming 1,429 civilian deaths from the Gouda attack,
3: right.
2: which is a strangely precise number for estimating uh, mass deaths like that. Not 1,430, not 1,428, 1,400... just
3: over 1,400,
2: yeah. 29, yeah. Where did they get that number from, considering they didn't have anyone on the ground counting them? And it was nearly three times the size of the highest estimates from other reliable sources. Doctors Without Borders... Médecins, médecins frontières. Mm-hmm. Oh. Uh, they had medical personnel on the ground in Gouda. Their estimate, their top estimate, was 355 deaths. Right. British intelligence indicated 350. The pro opposition Syrian Observatory for Human Rights counted 502. There was only one group that agreed with the U.S. estimate, and that was the Syrian National Coalition, which happened to be the opposition group backed by the Western powers. Mm. When the Associated Press tried to come up with a list of names, it could only come up with 395. This is when when the Associated Press went to the Syrian National Coalition and said, give us a list of names, they could only come up with 395. So... Straight off the bat, it looks like the White House is vastly inflating, exaggerating Mm -hmm. the number of dead in order to bolster their rhetoric, which is funny because they normally do the opposite. If you look at White House estimates for the number of civilians killed during their Afghanistan and Iraq invasions or the drone strikes... They're always oh, they They're always yeah, taking yeah. whatever the the doctors without borders or human rights watch numbers or amnesty numbers are, and just dividing them by ten. Go wow, well, you know, yeah. you can't trust can those guys. Off. Yeah. So this was the opposite. Um, Arki Selstrom, who we mentioned in previous episodes, who was the head of the UN chemical weapons inspection team that was sent to Syria. Uh, said himself that the rebels significantly exaggerated the number of dead and injured treated in the Al Gouda hospitals. He said, we saw the capability of those hospitals, and it is impossible that they could have turned over the amount of people that they claim they did.
3: Wow. Yeah, because you can tell by the pictures when the people are standing around with the, the bodies, it doesn't look like a very big facility or even a big room. So, yeah. That absolutely makes sense.
2: The Wall Street Journal explained the di- di- the discrepancy between the numbers when they revealed that U.S. intelligence had scanned rebel videos with face recognition software to count the number of dead. Mm. So their facial recognition software was developed by the same people that developed Siri... And, uh, that's why they just, it was completely off. Hey Siri, can you, uh, <laughs> what's the weather going to be like? <laughs> um, so there was no on-scene investigation and all that. So right from the get-go, now, I don't know, as an American, Ray, mm-hmm. even though you've been working with me for a few years now, and I think you've been, you've increasingly come a, become slightly more cynical... I mean- Camized uh-huh. <laughs> Cameraized. Uh, are you surprised that the White House would make statements about the number of dead without being able to back it up,
3: oh my God, after three and a half years with you, I am not surprised about anything and think i I think everybody's fucking lying to me all the time no I mean they they have they have um something to sell. They need to have you feel a certain way to get emotional response, to pitch it in a certain way. Not surprised at all. Disappointed, but not surprised.
2: And, you know, this is this is like one example of why I don't trust anything that comes out of the White House or the U.S. intelligence agencies. Not that I'm saying that everything that comes out of them is a lie, but I just don't trust anything on the surface that they say, because they have such a track record of just making shit up and lying. And that you,
3: so yeah. It,
2: of course. So this is why we, you know, I have these debates with people all the time online when they go, well, all these US intelligence agencies in the White House say that Russia hacked emails. I'm like, really? Yeah, really. I don't care. I don't care what they say. Show me the proof. Well, here's the proof. We've got the, uh, you know, polar bear and uh, the uh, Really, but how do I know that that's the proof? They, 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 they wrote that report saying that that's what they found. How do I know that that's real? Show and people, and people think, uh, I think that that puts you into crazy tinfoil hat conspiracy. Th- Theorist, um, and it's not. I'm not saying everything's a conspiracy theory. I'm saying these guys fucking lie. They lie all the time. They have lied all the time forever. They lied back then. Part of their trade craft. Yeah, that's right. That's what they do. They lie for a living. They're lying now. They, they you know, here, here is an example. 2013, even uh, uh, under a Obama administration, it seems that they were just making this fucking number up or having very dubious. Uh, and this is US intelligence, again, that came up with this number by using, obviously, facial recognition software that was based on Rebel videos. So, A, you don't know how accurate the Rebel videos were. B, you don't know how accurate the facial recognition software is. C, then you've got somebody just making up a number. We don't know if that was actually even what the facial recognition software said. And then we're supposed to just believe that as being... Uh, the genuine article, and I it, it, again. There's a difference. I think it's important for people to realize. There's a difference in my mind, anyway, between being a conspiracy theorist and being a skeptic. Conspiracy mm-hmm. theorist, you just assume that everything is a conspiracy. I, and I've got, I know people like this. People who just assume everything is deliberately manufactured and engineered, and is a lie, and everybody is working for some hidden. Uh, agenda and as is is on the payroll of someone else. And right. they, they just automatically assume everything is a cover-up and a conspiracy and everything is being spun. Um, I, on the other hand, take the view that I'm a skeptic. I don't believe anything until I'm presented with evidence that I believe is relatively incontrovertible. That is 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 supportable, is backed up by multiple sources, verified by people who don't, whose agenda would not necessarily agree with the conclusion of the data, which is kind of the mm-hmm. scientific model, right? I don't have any right. sources sources verify the data who don't have anything to gain by the data being correct. Right. Um, you know, it's just it's just this recognition that we get lied to all the time. We sh- it's naive. To believe that we aren't being lied to all of the time, I think, yeah.
3: and just and be once skeptical. You, I'm sorry, and just once you accept that and embrace it. Obviously you'll uh, you'll be a little more cynical, maybe you'll be a little less happy. Um, but um No that's just
2: the way it's No it is. there's a difference between cynical and skeptical uh-huh. though.
3: Ah, okay.
2: Big words. Okay, Obama. <laughs> cynical? Yeah, let, let me explain my calculus <laughs> to you here, Ray. <laughs> I'm not a cynic, Ray. I'm a skeptic. <laughs> I don't know. Is this is <laughs> this Obama's corner?
3: No, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs>
2: You know, cynical is you think everything is shit and everything is a lie and everything's fucked up and fuck it all. Of course, that's got nothing to do with the original word, cynic, uh, from the the, uh, early Greek philosophers, but that's another story. Go listen to our Mm -hmm. Alexander show if you want to know where the cynics come from. It's in there somewhere. Skeptical is just saying... I reserve taking a position on this until I'm presented with what I consider to be sufficient, unbiased evidence. Right.
3: And you looking me deep into my eyes and saying, trust me, is not it.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Thanks for the Batman impersonation. That was good.
3: (laughs) I was just trying to do emotion and gravitas. But yeah. Who gave the order?
2: Who gave the order? Um. So, the first problem with the US's case here is the number of dead. The second problem yeah. is that the White House statement was called a government assessment, not an intelligence assessment oh. or a national intelligence estimate, right. an NIE. Now, this apparently is pretty important. Now, I'm sure most of us, including me, until I'd done my research for this show, didn't realise the difference between a government assessment, a government assessment, or an intelligent assessment. Right. The an intelligent assessment, uh, particularly the National Intelligence Estimate, mm-hmm. contains or is allowed to contain dissenting opinions. Now, uh, you you basically get all of these different opinions, whether they're agreeing or dissenting, and then you come up with a conclusion based on that. A government assessment is just, hey, this is what the government thinks. And, of course, it's going to obey the government party line.
3: It's politics. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So keep, keep an eye out for those words in the future. Government assessment versus intelligent assessment or national intelligence estimate now, according to several investigative journalists, there was dissent, uh, and I've mentioned some of this briefly before. There was some intelligence officers in the U.S. intelligence community that believed that the government assessment was just the administration trying to save face for having failed to act sooner in mm-hmm. Syria. According to Cy Hirsch, Seymour Hirsch, who, by the way, I saw won some award for journalistic uh, integrity this week. Congratulations cool. to Simon Hirsch, Seymour cool. Hirsch. Uh, according to his investigations, one former intelligence officer believed that the Obama administration had altered intelligence to make it look like it was collected in real time when, in fact, it had been retrieved days later. In an article Hirsch wrote for the London Review of Books, which is where he publishes a lot of his stuff these days, he quoted this intelligence officer who is remains anonymous, and a lot of people criticise that, and rightly so. I don't like intelligence, uh, sorry, anonymous sources usually, right. but in the sorts of you know areas that Hirsch deals with, and secondly, yeah. with Hirsch's credibility, it. it Anonymous sources aren't ideal, but it depends on who's using them and what their level of credibility is as an investigative journalist. Mm-hmm. When you've got a guy like Cy Hirsch or maybe Woodward and Bernstein or I don't know who, who, what other examples right. you want to use, investigative journalists that have got decades under their belt of driving genuine investigative journalism that has been proven to be right on a number of occasions. They have these relationships that go back decades in the political and military and intelligence and in corporate communities in the United States. Yes, I I think that's different to someone you've Mm -hmm. never heard of quoting uh, anonymous sources. These guys have earned the right to be trusted when they say they have... An anonymous source Not that what the anonymous source tells them Is necessarily 100% correct 100% of the time But we can trust the journalist I think that he really does have a source Who is telling him these things And that he has And that his Yeah, his his assessment of the Credibility of his source Should be Treated as Strong All right Mm -hmm. Because this guy has a track record, as Hirsch does, and I've talked about that on this show and the Cold War show before. Anyway, this uh, this is how he quoted the intelligence officer. The distortion, he said, reminded him of the 1964 Gulf of Tonkin incident when the Johnson administration reversed the sequence of national security agency intercepts to justify one of the early bombings of North Vietnam. The same official said there was immense frustration inside the military and intelligence bureaucracy, The guys are throwing their hands in the air saying, how can we help this guy, meaning Obama, when he and his cronies in the White House make up the intelligence as they go along? Now, you know, we kind of assume, I think these days, a lot of us anyway, that the Trump administration is just making up intelligence as they go and just making up everything pretty much as they go. Even words, yeah. But... I don't know that many uh, people, particularly Democrats, um, think that the Obama administration would do such a thing. They would be highly affronted to do such Mm -hmm. a thing, but at least according to this source from Seymour Hersh, that's what was going on during the Obama administration. Shall I continue? I'll continue.
3: Yeah, yeah. So getting uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I thought you were winding down. I apologize.
2: Oh, I am. I'm just going to mention this point and then we'll wind up this episode.
3: Okay.
2: So still talking about how the US case for Syria being responsible for Ghouta kind of started to look pretty mm-hmm. flimsy uh, pretty quickly. Um, and the third is something that we did mention briefly last time, but I wanted to talk about a little bit more. There was this question about who fired the rockets. Uh, Now, the White House claimed that the Sarin rockets were fired from the areas in Damascus that were controlled by Assad's military. Mm -hmm. But the uh, the other reports came out that said that couldn't have been the case. Now, the New York Times and Human Rights Watch assumed that the rockets were fired from over nine kilometers away from their target – which again puts them in the territories controlled by the Assad military at the time. But as we mentioned on an earlier episode, Richard Lloyd, who's a former UN weapons inspector who currently works at Tesla Labs in Arlington, Virginia, mm. and Theodore A. Postol, who's a professor of science, technology, and national security policy at MIT in Boston. So neither of them are uh, amateurs. Um, they analysed the data that was presented by the UN inspectors concerning the rockets that had sarin in them. And they concluded that the rockets at maximum would have had a range of two kilometres. Now, Arki Selstrom, the UN weapons inspector who was there, was asked about this at a press conference, and he agreed that a two-kilometre range would be a fair guess and said that the rockets could even... Have been fired as close as one kilometer. Now, this is the head UN's weapons inspector, who's actually fucking in Damascus at the time, said one to two kilometers, not nine kilometers, as the New York Times and the White House was claiming. Now, if they are right, this is Selstrom, Lloyd, and Postol. This puts the rockets uh, their their launching um, zone as right in rebel-controlled territory.
3: Mhm.
2: Now it goes now, on. Sorry. Those, keep going.
3: I, I mean I've seen videos of what they use it's pretty mobile. So anybody on either side could have went to a certain area, fired it and take off, but I'm just throwing that out. I'm just spitballing.
2: Well, yeah, possibly. That's you know, so you're suggesting that maybe someone from the Syrian military took I'm just the saying rockets it's possible into possible the-
3: because I was watching a whole bunch of videos when when the UN was doing its uh, report, um, and they put out a report in September and also December. But yeah, I was just showing, I was just looking at the shells and the and the, and the guns that are used to uh, to uh, fire those. Now yeah, You can hook it up to the back of a jeep or whatever, pull it somewhere. Obviously, you have to get through enemy territory, but um, that's what just makes it more confusing for me because either side could have done it if they could have gotten to that location safely enough and been left alone for a couple minutes to fire off the shells.
2: But I... The more, I think, important question here is, Ray, Mm -hmm. if these uh, guys, Lloyd and Postol and Arki Selstrom, who's there on the ground, the head UN's weapons inspector, are saying one to two kilometers, where the fuck is the White House and getting this nine kilometer location from? Uh, and why are they stating it as if it's fact when there are contrarian views on where it was fired from yeah they're uh, spinning the story yeah well again it seems that way now on top of that Robert Fisk who we've mentioned a lot of times veteran Middle, Middle East correspondent for the London Independent he was in Brisbane last week giving a talk too and I meant to go see him but just couldn't make it happen Uh. He discovered that the rockets that were carrying the sarin were actually Soviet grads that were made in the Soviet Union in 1967 wow. and used in 2013, according to his Russian sources. And again, Fisk, very credible uh, journalist, been working in the Middle East for decades. Mm -hmm. Uh, His sources told him that the Soviets sold this batch of grads to Yemen, Egypt, and Libya, but not to Syria. Right. But he couldn't get any proof, like documentation, out of them to prove that. But that was what his sources told him. Now, as we've seen in recent episodes, uh, there were... uh, Fundamentalist Islamic groups operating out of Libya that were supporting al-Qaeda-affiliated groups in Syria. We also had this suggestion of a rat line, according to Cy Hirsch, where the CIA was funneling weapons out of Libya and into Syria to be given to the rebels. So it's possible that someone like al-Nusra or ISIS received the rockets and the chemicals from Libya and had them smuggled into Syria via any number of those pathways, either uh, something the rebels themselves were getting in there or something that the CIA was operating uh, via Turkey, this rat line.
3: So j- just... Rec- I'm sorry, go ahead. Then I'll I have a question. Uh, you go. So, so I guess pretty much... With that information, I mean, it throws the entire thing into confusion. Which your point is: how can the United States declare definitively these facts when they, they when they've been disputed by um, credible sources? So it could have been it could have been the G- Syrian government. It could have been the rebels who maybe want to get the the um, the blame put on the Syrian government. It could have been a third party with their own agenda wanting to make the Syrian government look bad and hopefully trigger a response from the West. So it could have been a lot of different entities or several different entities that launched those attacks yeah. for their own reasons. Yeah. yeah. Okay.
2: And we'll break that down further in the next episode. Uh, before we go, I want to read a review. This is from Jaffnahar. I don't think I've read this one before, but tell me if I have. Uh, Jaf Nahar in the United States. Uh, this podcast is dedicated to explaining current events. The real strength is that Cam and Ray spend a lot of time on the background of events. The first series is on the Syrian civil war and they didn't start talking about the war until episode 10. I don't think they even talked about the modern Syrian state for the first several episodes. This is not wasted time. Most anyone listening to a podcast on current events will be familiar with the basics of the Syrian civil war. I've learned more from the background these guys have provided. For instance, if you'd asked me a few weeks back what an Alawite is, I would have said some sort of Shiite Muslim. It turns out to be more complicated than that. And I learned it from this podcast. And if you'd asked me about the current president slash dictator of Syria, I would have said he's the Alawite with the banging wife whose dad had been in charge too. You'll learn so much more about the Assad clan, the Ba'ath Party, and the power structure of Syria before the Civil War. All of it vital to understanding what's happened since the beginning of the war. I'm not necessarily on board with their philosophy of history and politics, which is just pretty much don't be a cunt. So I don't know what's not to be on board. His Jafna is like, no, be a cunt. Cam, I think, tends to see ideologies and religions not so much as the causes of conflict, but as the excuses to compete for resources and power. Yes, that's pretty much true. This is Pretty true in general. many respects, but I think it may be worthwhile to take even official state ideologies more seriously because philosophical ideas mix with crasser motivations in complex ways to produce sometimes unexpected results in world history. Realpolitik does not explain everything. But that's a suggestion, not a criticism. Great podcast. Well, uh, Um Yeah, look, I, I actually agree with you. I think it is... As complex as you state, I I do think uh, there's a whole mixture of things going on. I guess when I talk about ideologies or religions being used to justify things, that's a simplistic view of understanding um, the motivations behind a lot of wars or international conflicts or trade deals, whatever it is. Um, I think it is vastly more complex than that on the ground, but... Every scenario is different with its own people and its own complexity. So I think you're right. I don't think we disagree on that. I guess when I when I talk about that kind of stuff, I just don't think most people or certainly a lot of people uh, think about war or even just politics in general, international politics, geopolitics. In that way, and I'm trying to get them to think about it from a different perspective. I'm not saying it's all that way 100% of the time. I know I say mm-hmm. it's always about trade and security, and I think that is a large component of it. But yes, there are complexities, no doubt about it. There are true believers who believe in their religion, true believers who believe in their ideology. Um, yeah. But I think they're few and far in between, actually.
3: Yeah. And normally their leaders are lying, assholes, car, used car salesmen. But anyway.
2: That's it for episode 20, we'll be back with episode 21 next time. Everywhere. Everywhere. Oh, didn't mean to do that. Fuck.